So stories from the Bible are God's stories. And he gave them to us, his people, so that we could know him. And the story that I'm going to tell you today is actually one of my favorite stories to tell because it's about a guy who just really got himself into a mess, but God still talked to him and made him an amazing promise. His name was Jacob. And when the story starts, Jacob had gotten into a real mess with his family. I wonder if that's ever happened to any of you. Jacob lied to his father. He cheated his brother twice and his brother was really angry about it. And his mother had just told him that she thought that it was probably a good idea if he just went away for a while, somewhere far away until everything calmed down. So there was Jacob without a family, without a home, off by himself. He didn't know where he was going to go. He didn't know what was going to happen to him. And even though he'd kind of gotten himself in this mess, it wasn't a very nice situation to be in. So he's traveling far from home and he'd traveled for quite a while. It was getting late. The sun was going down and there wasn't any place to sleep except for the ground where he was. So he found this rock and he used it for a pillow and he fell asleep. And while he slept, something amazing happened. Jacob dreamed about a stairway, a really big, wide stairway. And the bottom step of the stairway was right where Jacob's head was. And it rose up, 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 all the way to heaven. And there were angels continuously coming down the stairs and going back up and coming down and going back up. And while the angels were doing that, at the very top of the stairs, right at heaven, stood the Lord God himself. And he spoke to Jacob. He said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, your father. And I am going to give to you, Jacob, the very land that you are sleeping on. And no matter how far you travel away from here, no matter what direction you go, I will bring you back to this land. And you and your descendants will be a blessing to the world. And I will be your God and I will never leave you. And then Jacob woke up and he sat up And the dream was over and the stairway was gone, but he could still feel God's presence. The world around him was quiet, except for the beating of his heart. And he didn't want to move and he didn't want to talk. He didn't really know what to say. But then finally he said, this place, this place right here is a place where God is. And he wanted to remember that. 
and he wanted to remember God and honor God in that place. So he took that rock, the one he'd been using for a pillow, and he turned it upright so it was standing up kind of like a pillar. And he poured some oil over it so that the oil flowed down the rock. He did that to honor God. And then he gave that place a name. He named it Bethel, which means house of God. And then he promised that the Lord God would always be the God that he followed. And he continued on with his journey knowing that one day God would bring him back to that land. I wonder, I wonder where you know a place where God is. What's a place where you think God is? Think that in your head. I wonder what would you name a place where God is? I wonder, I wonder what happened to Bethel after that. I wonder if it was always ever after that a place where people honored God's presence. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Okay, stay here, but turn and look that way. You guys are so lucky because you have, one, you get to see a baptism in a minute, but you're lucky that you have such an amazing storyteller in Miss Beth. Yes. Y'all, I have heard that story, <laughs> yeah. I have heard that story like a thousand times. And I'm sitting over there thinking about what I have to do next. And she's talking and I'm like, oh my gosh, what happens next? <laughs> Man, thanks, Beth. We're so grateful to have you. Hey, it's exciting. We do get to celebrate a baptism today. Eric and Paulina, if you want to bring that sweet baby up forward along with the godparents, if y'all would like to come forward and stand next to Sabrina. I'm going to say a couple yeah. things before we start. Uh, Eric and Paulina, uh, we met earlier in the week and Paulina and her family, they come from a Russian Orthodox background which I don't need to describe because I don't understand it all, but <laughs> significantly different than a Presbyterian background. But what was great about our conversation is even though some of the words are different, we're saying the same thing. We know what's happening here as we baptize baby Taya. We know what that means, baptizing into the community, into the protection and the love of Jesus Christ until the day that she can claim that as her own. So in Romans five and six, uh, two things are made really clear. And one is that we're helpless to save ourselves. So just as sweet little Taya is utterly dependent on the two of you to protect her and guide her, to grow into the person she was created to be, we are utterly dependent on the gift of God to become the people that we were created to be. And the second truth it tells us is that when we are able to respond to God's gift of grace, that that gift needs to be willingly received and put to use in this life. So in our tradition, we baptize both children and adults as a way of putting on display both of those truths. When an adult is baptized, it's a sign that they're accepting that gift of grace and salvation through Jesus, and we celebrate that in baptism. And when parents, with the help of their church family, when they commit to raise a child in the way of Jesus until the day that the child can claim the faith on their own, 
and we celebrate in baptism as well. So today it's so exciting uh, that we get to celebrate the love of God, his gift of grace for all of us, but especially today, his great focused love on Taya. So through baptism, we know that we enter into the covenant God's established, and that covenant God gives us new life. We're guarded from evil, we're nurtured by the love of God and God's people. So it's an obedience to the word of our Lord Jesus. We're confident in his promise. We baptize those who God has called. So in baptism, God claims us, seals us to show that we belong to him. God frees us from sin and death, unites us with Jesus Christ in this life and in his death and in his resurrection. So will you pray with me? A merciful God, you call each of us by name and you promise to each of us your constant unfailing love. So this morning specifically, we pray that you would watch over Taya as she grows, develop in her through her family and her church, her understanding of the gospel of your love for her. Give her the strength throughout her life that she can commit to follow the way of Jesus. Call her into your church so that her faith will be strengthened throughout her life in this community through communion with others. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So Eric and Paulina, I have some questions for you. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior? And relying on God's grace, do you commit to live the Christian faith as disciples of Jesus? Will you raise Taya in the way of Jesus until the day that she can claim this faith? And then finally, putting your whole trust in the grace and the love of Jesus, do you desire to have Taya baptized today? Wonderful. Evan and Glynis, you've accepted the role as godparents of Taya. It's a really important part, and I have a question for you as well. And as I told you before, the answer is yes. any other answer and we've got to shut this whole thing down. So the question is, do you commit through prayer and example to support and encourage Eric and Paulina and do your part to help raise Taya to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, do you? Yes. Amen. To the congregation, do you promise to support and encourage Eric, Paulina, and then to guide and nurture Taya by word and deed with love and prayer, encouraging her to know and follow Christ and to be a faithful member of his church, do you? Yes. My friends, will you please bow your heads with me as I pray. Father God, we pray that you would take this ordinary water, this element of your creation, and that you would use it now for your extraordinary purpose. Make this a sign, Lord, and a seal over Taya, an external demonstration of a truth that lies deep within us, that we have been bought with a price that we have been restored as your image bearers, as your children, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, sweet Taya. I know, yes. I know it's not mama, yeah, I know. Just for one moment, okay? Okay. Taya Catherine, I baptize you in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Christ. You are a beautiful, precious child of God the Father 
and he loves you more than you can ever possibly know. Bless you, my child. And the sign of the cross on your forehead and a sign of a cross from the family. All right, sweet baby. This cross is from your mama and your daddy. This cross is an outward sign of the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. We pray blessings over you your entire life. In Jesus' name, amen. She wants her mama, and she's all done with that water. Beautiful baby. There you go. Sabrina, will you lead a prayer over Taya, and then we'll finish. Yes. Gracious and mighty God, we thank you for this addition to your kingdom, the sweet blessing of Taya. We lift her up to you for guidance, for care in this congregation and through her godparents and through her parents. And all the days of her life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we welcome Taya to the church family? But can, can we also welcome them just by singing together and just singing Jesus Loves Me? You guys know that one, right? Oh, come on. <laughs> Jesus You guys can have a seat. Thanks. Polina, when she started crying, it reminded me of our conversation. Polina asked me, she said, when one of the differences in the way we baptize and the way the Russian Orthodox baptized, she said, do you dunk the whole baby in all the water? <laughs> and I said, no, we, we sprinkle on their head. And she said, in the Russian Orthodox church, they just take the whole baby and all the way in the water three times. And then she told a story of a family member who that happened and somebody at the baptism didn't appreciate that much and had some words for the priest. And after the baptism, they had a special service for that man. <laughs> so luckily we got away with this one. <laughs> We're grateful for y'all, glad you're here. Uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, so grateful. What a, what a just an amazing opportunity, uh, not only to be witnesses and to be a part of a sweet baptism of one of your children, but to remember our own. To remember the commitment and the promises that you have made to us, your faithfulness, and that even in our waywardness and our inability to be totally faithful to you, you still confirm those promises made at our baptism and you guide us and guard us throughout our lives. So God, I pray that in these moments and these sacraments that they would be a reminder not only of how important and meaningful this is to this one family, but what this truly means for this life as we prepare for the next. That you are a God who lives outside of time, but you function and operate in it, standing right by our side all the way, giving us evidence throughout that we can trust you, that we can rely on you, that we can depend on you in all things, comforting us, 
when that trust and dependence upon you is challenged. We pray that these sweet moments would be reminders of your goodness, your truth, and your commitment and your love for us. So this morning, as we hear the scriptures read, we pray, as always, that you would open our minds, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that we could receive what you have for us. We pray that in turn, we would open our mouths to share that good news with others, that we would use our hands to serve those in need, and that we'd remember that our feet move for a reason, because you told us to go. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said, Amen. So a disclaimer is not a great way to start a sermon, but I do want to say first, this is a weird story, especially coming after such a sweet baptism. So let me just say it so you don't have to think it, all right? The second thing is, you guys know we have these values here to be disciple-making disciples who are biblically literate, spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. And sometimes, even just within worship, we need to work those out. So today, the sermon itself is really an exercise in biblical literacy and gospel fluency. By biblical literacy, we don't just mean sitting down and reading the Bible, we mean learning how to read the Bible. It is an old ancient document written in two foreign languages. It takes time and it takes work and it takes effort to really understand things, especially when we come across really strange stories like the one we're gonna read today. It's also an exercise in gospel fluency. We've been telling you that we are called to be a people who share this beautiful good news with the world. But to do that, we have to know the whole story. So today we are gonna talk about the beauty of that whole story, but we're also gonna talk about one of the more difficult aspects of it. So, enough of a disclaimer? Okay, I guess that's better than this sermon is terrible. So you guys can decide that at the end. So like I said, this is a really weird story that I'm about to read um, from our perspective and from the perspective of people who read it a couple thousand years ago. Um, weird probably is an understatement. It's, it's troubling, it's disturbing. Um, and to be honest with you, I've been waiting years <laughs> to teach this story. Um, I've always wanted to, but I've never felt like I was ready. Uh, but it's the only story in scripture that directly involves two bears. So it's got to be preached at some point this year, <laughs> right? So we might as well go with it today. Um, I just hope that I am actually ready. So um, at the heart of the story, is, it's not just about two bears. It's about a character. Um, it's about a man who is standing in the footsteps of some really familiar giants, some names who have come before him, giants in the story of God. And this prophet bears witness to God's mercy and to God's judgment against a city and a people who have walked away from the God who saved them. So I do wanna give you a little background before we get into the story because this is part of understanding how to read scripture. Elijah, the prophet, if you remember this from Sunday school, Elijah is taken up to be with the Lord. His story ends with chariots and horses of fire. It's in a whirlwind that he's taken up to be with the Lord. But he leaves behind his disciple, a man named Elisha. And I'm just telling you, the sermon would be a lot easier to preach if they had very different names, but they don't. So I'll try to enunciate. He leaves behind his disciple, Elisha. Elijah was the leader who's often referred to in scripture as Elisha's head, the head of their ministry. Elijah was a father figure. He's the man who guided Elisha on the path to becoming the next prophet of God after him. So knowing that the two of them would soon be separated, Elisha, we find him worried about his own ability to carry on the ministry. 
He even asks, he says, I want a double portion of the spirit and the power that God gave you. He says that to his leader. And the book of 2 Kings will describe for us 14 miracles that God performs through Elisha, which is exactly twice as many as the miracles God performed through Elijah. So we know that throughout his life, God was faithful to this young prophet, but that faithfulness had both beautiful and terrible consequences. So we enter into our story today. Elisha is just getting started. His leader is no longer by his side. And as he travels, we find this. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. (laughs) When's the last time you jeered somebody? (laughs) Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. (laughs) And that's the story. (laughs) I told you, (laughs) that's weird. Uh, But this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, so we need to figure out how. Okay, Um, I, I have always believed that if it's in God's word, then one way or another, it's pointing us forward toward the gospel. And for years, like I said, I've struggled to understand how that applies to this story. But with some good hard work, I think that we can see that it does bear witness to the character and nature of God and also to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I started by telling you that the story centers around this character, Elisha, the successor to Elijah. And Elisha is now God's chosen man, his representative, sent to an Israelite city that is just lost, y'all. The people have willingly turned away from God entirely. The question Beth asked, I wondered what happened at Bethel if they always remained faithful. We know the answer. You have to understand the location, the setting to understand the story. It's really important. And the story starts by telling us from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. That simple verse points to the tragic irony in the story. Even before the story Beth told, Bethel is actually first mentioned in Genesis 12. It's the place where Abraham sets up camp where he builds an altar to God after God first calls Abraham to trust and follow him. And then of course again in Genesis 28, as Beth said, it's the location where Jacob has this famous stairway to heaven dream. It's there, he names the city Bethel. That city has a history going all the way back to the beginnings of Israel itself and its name means what? Beth told you. Its name means the house of God. What is a house of God? Especially from an Old Testament perspective. What is the house of God? It's a temple. It's a sanctuary. But by the time Elisha goes up to Bethel, this Israelite city, this is not some pagan city, this is an Israelite city full of God's chosen people, it became, as one scholar says, a habitation of the devil, one of the principal seats of Israel's idolatry. Israel had this horrible king named Jeroboam, and he created not one, but two golden calves, because the one golden calf at Mount Sinai just wasn't enough, apparently. And he takes one of them and places it in a town called Dan, and the other one he puts in Bethel. And he calls for feasts, he makes sacrifices to these golden calves. You can find this story in 1 Kings 12. God's people intentionally turned away from the God who saved them, the God who delivered them into the promised land. And they mocked that God. 
by worshiping gold cows in the city named the house of God, in a city that was meant to be a temple. You know, one way to tell the character of a city over a nation, one way to tell who a people are, is to pay attention to the actions and belief of its youth. The actions and beliefs of the youth tell us a lot about the character of a town because they know what they know only because it was passed down to them. The good and the bad. Children and students, they are products of their environment. They receive their worldview and their habits from the generations and the culture that raised them. And I'm gonna read this story again in just a minute, but these boys of Bethel, in this story, they are bearing witness to the idolatry of a city and its people. So as you're studying scripture, you gotta know the characters, you gotta know the setting, and then you can start to understand, at least today, what I think is the most important part of the story. We can begin to see how this points forward to the good news of who God is and what he's done. So let me read this to you one more time, as fun as it is to hear. (laughs) From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Everybody, get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, maybe if you were imagining the scene as I read it, maybe you're picturing this. Little kindergartners just innocently teasing a grumpy old man and the grumpy old man angrily has them killed by a couple bears. (laughs) That's one way to read it. The phrase in the NIV, some boys, other translations use the word children. And the word there, Hebrew word, it can be used to refer to children, but it is often used throughout the Old Testament and in other Hebrew literature to refer to adolescents, even as old as their mid to late 20s. So most scholars agree that some boys in this story are likely students, from our perspective, maybe like high school aged. We also know that Elijah wasn't a grumpy old man, at least not yet. This is the start of his ministry. His ministry is going to last another 50 years. So he's most likely in his mid to late 20s when this story is taking place. A prophet in his mid to late 20s, surrounded by what I am convinced were teenagers, And we know that he's surrounded by a bunch of them. It is a large, aggressive crowd. If you notice from the text, how many of them were mauled by the bears? 42, and that's really important. I know that's a big number, okay? I know it's a lot. But you know what it could have said? It could have said all of them. But it didn't. It numbers them. That means that there were more than 42 of them there. More than 42 youth coming to confront God's prophet. So we have one man who, by the way, is mourning the loss of his father figure, Elijah, walking through a city full of Israelites who had become aggressive in their idolatry, and now he's surrounded by a mob of youth raised in that culture. So listen to what they say to him. NIV says, get out of here. Uh, Most other translations say, go on up. And that's weird in English, That's why the NIV changes it a little bit, but it's actually more accurate. Go on up is more accurate because it points us back to a story that came before it. What did I tell you? Just before Elisha 
before he heals poison waters, before he comes to the scene with these bears, what happened to his father figure, Elijah? What happened? He was taken up. He was taken up into the sky to be with God. The word that the boys use was translated, get out of here, go on up. But it's also, also translated, ascend, rise up. I told you earlier, Elisha is doubting his call to be the successor to the great Elijah. He asked God, you have to give me twice the power of Elijah if I'm ever gonna do this. I don't know about y'all, like maybe not in ministry, but just in life, have you ever felt called or led to do something that you weren't prepared for? <laughs> like you ever felt like you gotta go do something, but like, I don't know, is it time yet? Am I, have I, do I have enough experience? Am I good enough? Like, then you start to get that imposter syndrome once you take the job and you don't know if you really belong. <laughs> it's my story, y'all. This gang of youth are shouting at him, Go on up, ascend, put it in context. They're mocking him personally. You're no Elijah. They knew who Elijah was. You're no Elijah. If you think you are, go on up, ascend, just like he did. They confront him by questioning the power and authority of God in him. As his ministry is just getting started, the youth of the lost city do their best to affirm Elisha's doubts in God's decisions and in God's ability to use him. But that's not even the real offense. This is even worse. Go on up, ascend, what? What do they call him? Baldy, <laughs> so weird. Uh, bald head is another translation. Uh, literally, the word means hairless. They're not making fun of his hair or the lack thereof. We actually don't know if he had hair or not. Most prophets did have a full head of hair. They're not making fun of his hairdo. And we know this, again, because of context. In a story that comes just before it in 2 Kings 1. Listen to how his father figure Elijah is described. He is described as a man of hair with a leather belt worn around his waist. Now, some translations, that's weird. Again, it's weird. So they say a garment made of hair. But y'all, that is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says a man of hair, a hairy man. And I don't think this is about him having long hair because this word appears one other time too. Jacob, who we heard about earlier, one of the things he did was betray his brother Esau. His, his brother Esau is described how? As Harry, a man of hair. And what did Jacob have to do to impersonate his brother Esau? Did he have to grow long hair? No, what did he do? He put a fur coat on. Dude was Harry. Elijah is described using the same exact language. He's a man of hair, a hairy man. So Elisha called into ministry to be God's mouthpiece to an aggressively idolatrous city, worried about his ability to replace Elijah as God's prophet, mourning the loss of a father figure in his life, the head of his ministry up until now, he is mocked by a huge group of young people raised in an idolatrous city. And they're saying, you're no Elijah. If you are, then show us, go on up, ascend, just like he did. But you're not. And not only that, you're alone. Baldy, hairless, 
You've lost your man of hair. You are all alone. Y'all, this is what the Hebrew language and the context around this story are telling us. It's an awkward story in Hebrew and in English. And that's why the translators, they simplify things for us so we can understand it on a first week, first read. And these English translations, they're not wrong. They're showing us the base level point that the prophet of God is being mocked. But when you learn how to read scripture, when you put stories in their context, when you stop reading scripture one or two verses at a time and you start reading what goes around it, the context makes it perfectly clear, perfectly obvious. These boys are using Elisha's fears and his doubts against him. They're abusing a prophet of God while he's mourning the loss of a father figure in his life. They're mocking and abusing him no matter what language you read it in. And do you understand what I mean by that? I'm not, I'm not, when I teach it this way, I'm not trying to say you can't fully understand it if you don't know the Hebrew. You can understand what's going on. But if you spend time with it and if you read it in context, if you work through it together, you just find that there's even more there than you realized. They are mocking and abusing a prophet of God. And mocking the prophet of God is the same as mocking God himself. So what does Elisha do? What would you do? He curses them in the name of the Lord. I'd probably have a choice word for them myself. And then all of that brings us to the moment we've been waiting for. (laughs) Two bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of them. All right, really disturbing. Uh, Just yesterday, uh, I was telling Benjamin, just yesterday um, on my little news feed, a story comes up about a woman who was at like a wildlife refuge in Germany. And she was attacked by a leopard. And it injured her. She had obviously scars on her face. She was hospitalized for a couple days. And I'm not kidding. The headline of the story, guess what it was? Woman mauled by leopard. (laughs) Words matter. It matters what these words mean. In the Hebrew, this word maul means to break open, to break through or to break into something. The most violent way it's used is to tear open. But that can even be to tear open a letter. It's used in all kinds of different ways, but you know how it's not used. You know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean to kill. There's a Hebrew word for killing, and this is not it. They were mauled in some way. This is a very violent and troubling story. But when you do the work, when you dig in, can you now see our first reading of it, right? This grumpy old Elisha has 42 innocent little boys killed because they called him names. That is not what's happening at all. Not at all. But here's the deal. I'm not telling you that to soften or minimize the story, to soften or minimize the violence. Because this is absolutely a story about God's judgment. It is absolutely a story about God's righteous anger toward even his own people when they turn toward idols, when they are so far gone that they openly mock and question his power and authority by challenging and abusing his chosen people. It is clearly a bloody and violent story. Do you understand it a little better? Do you understand how important it is to put these things in context and not just read one or two verses at a time? It's so important. Okay, but so what? <laughs> what, what, what do we do with this today? And this is the hard truth. We have to accept the hard truth that God judges. 
and it's terrible. Elisha's story, the prophets in general, they bear witness to a merciful God who does judge evil. He doesn't dismiss it. He does something about it. In our more modern and sophisticated times, we become accustomed or way more comfortable with thinking about God as loving, not judging. But y'all, I think we're missing something really important when we do that because I would, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, I would argue that God's judgment is evidence of God's love. A God who judges doesn't terrify me. You know what terrifies me? What terrifies me is the idea of a God who doesn't judge. Because that God would be dispassionate and apathetic, uncaring about the injustice and the evil that's running rampant through the lives of families and neighborhoods and cities and nations. It is not loving to sit back and watch, unmoved, as evil destroys individuals, families, and cultures. Your own family or children or your friends, would you sit back unmoved if they are being ravaged and destroyed by evil? Would you say, hmm, it happens. I don't want to be mean and judge. (laughs) Of course you wouldn't. It is not loving to be dispassionate and separated from what's happening in the lives of your children. We know that. So I would argue the truth is that we want a God who judges. I would say even people who don't believe in God, they want a God who judges. They want a God who judges murderers and violent dictators. The world wants a God who judges leaders in a country who are oppressing women, who are killing people who disagree with them. We want a God who judges abusers and disruptors. We want a God who judges because in him there is no evil and he won't tolerate evil having its way with his children. In fact, I would argue that we get frustrated sometimes, that we find ourselves judging and accusing God because we see the chaos and evil in the world and it seems like he's not doing enough. Like he's not acting fast enough. But our perspective quickly changes and we are quick to appeal to God's patience and mercy and temperance when it comes to judging, when we remember the truth that that same evil is found deep within me. See, the truth is we want a God who judges. We want God to judge evil. We just don't want God to judge the evil inside of us. So two pieces of really good news. I told you that every story, it points forward to the gospel in one way or another. This story does too. First, it tells us that judgment is an act of love. Not only because it's evidence that God won't allow evil to have its way with us, it's an act of love and mercy because all judgment, until the final judgment, all judgment is partial and its purpose is to warn us. If you remember from our study in Revelation a year ago, as terrible as some of the imagery was, when the judgments were falling, it was always on a third. A third of this, never total and complete until the very end. God's judgment is an act of love and its purpose is to warn us. It's a bold warning to say, y'all, you are going the wrong way and you have got to turn around. In this really troubling story today, God's violent judgment is partial. Not all the boys, 42 of them, and they weren't killed. They were cut through or broken through 
This judgment is harsh and it's violent, but it's not total. It's a warning to the boys. What do you think the rest of those boys did when they saw Elisha the next time? (laughs) I know what they didn't say. (laughs) But it's a warning to an entire idolatrous city. You think it's bad what you think it's bad what God just did to 42 of your kids through these bears? Look what you're doing to them. Look what you're doing to your kids. Raising them to think that there is no truth. Raising them to think that God's just some fairy tale, that there is really no hope, that you're just on your own. You can believe whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, it doesn't really matter. That's the real damage. That's the damage that destroys. This judgment calls them to turn around. You are going the wrong way. God's judgment, even of his own people, it is a call to repent and to return to him. That's intense, I know, but it actually is good news. Uh, The second piece of good news. Um, A few weeks ago, Benjamin and I, we were standing in the back of a pickup truck riding through the mountains of Honduras. Because that's how you ride through the mountains in Honduras. <laughs> the trucks have two seats in the front. Everybody else rides in the back. So uh, normally there's a whole bunch of people back there with us. Bill Ford was often back there with us holding down the fort. Um, the conversations that Bill Ford had with the boys, I won't tell you about those. Um, <laughs> you know, good fatherly advice. <laughs> Not preachable, but good fatherly advice. Um, but this, but this one trip, uh, Ben had a friend with him and uh, nobody else was back there. It was just me and Ben. Um, so I was asking, I was like, hey, how, how's he doing? You know, what does he think about all this craziness? What does he think about all these weird Christians? And we talked a little bit. And uh, Then I told him, I was like, hey, you know that story that I always talk about, about these bears killing these kids? <laughs> I was like, I'm, fi- I'm finally going to preach about it. Um, so we talked a little bit about, about what it meant. Um, and he asked me, he said, what does it mean? And I said, well, at the end of the day, it, it means that God judges. It's a story about God's judgment. And it's pretty terrible. Uh, But he said to me, uh, he said, yeah, but it's not complete. He said, doesn't the cross mean that God took the worst judgment on himself? I hadn't made the connection yet. (laughs) And that was a really good moment. When God's total judgment comes in its final form, when God's judgment of sin and evil was expressed in the world, it was focused on a particular time and place and person. When God's judgment came in its most complete form, he took it upon himself. The cross is the location of God's final and complete judgment. The tomb, empty tomb, is evidence that his sacrifices overcome and defeated death and evil. They no longer have the final say. So y'all, the idea of a couple bears tearing through a crowd of us, it's terrifying. But the idea of suffering under the weight of God's final judgment, it is far too much for us to bear. And in his mercy and his grace, he made another way and he gave us a choice. We can choose to bear the weight of the cross, the weight of glory, or we can choose to bear the burden of God's judgment. I've placed my life under the weight of glory because I'm convinced it's not the only way to life eternal, it's the only way to live this life right now. That is amazing grace that I deserve the full burden of God's total and complete judgment. But instead, I've been offered the glory of the cross. And here's one final little now what. Now what do you go do? I want you to remember, 
Elijah prepared the way for Elisha to bring this news, this full gospel of God's love and mercy, but also of God's judgment, to bring it to the people. Jesus prepared the way for his church to deliver that same news to the end of the earth, to tell lost, broken children of God that even though we deserve the, burdens of, the burden of God's total judgment, we've been offered the glory of the cross. Just like Elisha, we stand in the footprints of giants and we have a calling on our lives, a responsibility to deliver that good news. So next time somebody makes fun of you, just call out some bears and let the judgment fall. (laughs) (laughs) Next time someone voices doubt, doubt, anger, frustration, because they don't know who God is, they don't understand what he's up to, they don't even know if he's real. You stand on the shoulders of giants. You stand in the footprints of so many who have come before and your job is to be a mouthpiece. Deliver the message. Tell them that good news. Amen? To God be the glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.